welcome to Worldview, a foreign affairs podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Chris Dooley. As the Brexit negotiations enter what British Prime Minister Theresa May has described as the endgame, I'll be getting the latest from our London editor, Dennis Staunton. We'll be taking a particular look at the prospect of a second UK referendum on Brexit, a people's vote, as its proponents call it. Is this becoming a serious possibility? And what needs to take place to make it happen? I'll also be talking to Guy Hedgeco about his article on irishtimes.com about why Spain's judges are in the spotlight after an adverse verdict at the European Court of Human Rights and a series of controversial decisions. But it's Brexit first, and I'm joined now from London by Dennis. Um, Dennis, Theresa May chaired her weekly cabinet meeting today. Um, There were hopes up to a couple of days ago that this might be the meeting at which a deal was discussed, but we knew by last night that wasn't going to happen. Did anything significant emerge from the meeting and what else has been happening at Westminster today? Well, what emerged from the meeting was that she uh, did uh, speak to the cabinet about the state of negotiations. She suggested that they are getting closer to a deal. The the two teams were negotiating until almost three in the morning the other night and then they were also negotiating last night and again this morning. And so it seems as if they are closing in on uh, on the final uh, bits of a deal. But she said, you know, as she keeps saying, that she wants to get a deal as soon as possible, but she doesn't want to get it at any price. The deadline really for reaching an agreement is Wednesday night. Uh, it has to be done uh, by Wednesday evening if there's going to be uh, a special summit in uh, in November, probably on November the 25th. If it goes beyond Wednesday night, that doesn't mean that a deal is off forever, but it does mean that uh, the European Union won't discuss it until the leaders meet as planned in the middle of December. And that obviously makes the timetable for getting it through Parliament in Westminster quite tight. And just on that point, as you said, Theresa May in particular is very keen to have um, a deal in place in time for this end of November summit. Um, Why is that so crucial for her and where does it leave her if it's pushed back to December? What kind of difficulties does that pose for her? Well, I think there are sort of two calculations with regard to it, because there had been for some time, there was some speculation that the whips would actually like to leave the deal as late as possible so that you'd have a lot of pressure and tension and warnings about the consequences of a no-deal Brexit, and then you don't give the MPs too much time to think about it and you you push it through. But the calculation seems to have changed so that they now feel as if what they want, if they, you know, if they got a deal uh, signed off in Brussels at the end of November, they would then have three weeks to get it through Parliament uh, in time for Christmas. And you have to, you know, they're going to have a meaningful vote, as they call it. So that's a kind of an up and down vote in Parliament on the deal itself. And then if the deal is approved by Parliament, they then have to introduce all this um, implementation legislation, the withdrawal and implementation bill. And that, again, is going to take some time. So they want to get this process done as quickly as possible. And the idea would be to try to get it done by Christmas. The other calculation is that there's a suspicion that some in the cabinet uh, would quite like to see this uh, vote delayed because what they're hoping is that the more plans you put in place to deal with a no-deal Brexit, the less scary a no-deal Brexit becomes if you are faced with a choice of deal or no-deal. So, for example, if you went into uh, a vote now and the choice was between Theresa May's deal and no-deal, it's quite clear that the government has done very little to prepare for the consequences of no-deal. But if you give it a few weeks and they appear to have put more uh, measures in place and spent a bit more money on it, then maybe it's not quite so frightening. Um, now, we, we keep hearing from all sides that the deal is almost done. We're just down to the last couple of, albeit very difficult, issues. What are the outstanding issues? 
The main outstanding issue is about the backstop, uh, this uh, arrangement which is supposed to guarantee that there'll be no hard border in uh, in Ireland uh, after Brexit, no matter what happens. And that takes the form of the whole of the United Kingdom remaining in a kind of customs union uh, with the European Union, with some special measures for Northern Ireland. So they would, uh, Northern Ireland would be more closely aligned with the European Union, say, in the single market and in customs than the rest of the United Kingdom. The issue is not so much in the negotiations about the actual backstop itself, which appears to be more or less agreed. It's about how does Britain get out of it? So uh, the deal is, the idea is that you're in the backs, the backstop kicks in unless and until a permanent solution is found to keep the border open. And the question is, how do you know when uh, you've achieved that? And what the UK wants, uh, initially they wanted to have a unilateral mechanism where they would just say, we can go right, we're ready, we're off now. The European Union said that obviously wouldn't work, it's not really a backstop. And the European Union has proposed a mutual consent review mechanism so that every so often you would review this but you'd need both parties to agree that um, that the you know that the conditions had been met and Britain has been pushing until now at least for some kind of independent arbitration so that the European Union wouldn't have a veto on whether uh, the backstop uh, has been superseded or not. And uh, and again, the European Union has been resisting that. So that is the main area. There are some other areas of disagreement to do with, for example, the fact that the uh, European Union wants what they call level playing field commitments. Uh, and that is uh, that while the, uh, the UK remains in this kind of customs union with the European Union, that it commits to following the same rules on things like state aid, environmental protection, labour rights. And that's so that Britain doesn't have a competitive advantage over the European Union you know, during uh, during that period. But but most of those seem to be resolved. So it really is all about the backstop. OK. And Dennis, they come down to this question of a possible second referendum, which has been much discussed over the last few days, especially since the, the resignation of Joe Johnson as transport minister the other day when he said he would he would back um, the cause for 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 a, for a second vote, leaving aside for a moment the level of support that's there for it, what needs to happen for a second vote to take place? Well, I think in practice what needs to happen is either. Theresa May comes back with no deal or she comes back with a deal and it's rejected by Parliament. Because what happens then is that uh, you know, you're know you faced, I mean, if the clock just keeps ticking until the 29th of March 2019, then according to Article 50 of the European Union, Britain leaves the European Union. That's, you know, the treaties no longer apply. So the question is, does you know, what does Parliament do? Uh, there is clearly a majority in Parliament which uh, is against the idea of leaving without a, a deal. And so what would have to happen would be that somebody would, and that's usually the government because the government controls the legislative agenda, would have to propose uh, a bill uh, and the, you know, it's a piece of legislation to say we are going to have a second referendum. And so you have to get the bill. So somebody has to propose the bill and that is, you know, and get time for it, usually the government. That bill then has to uh, get through. It also has to determine what's the question. And so that uh, you have a referendum commission, an independent referendum commission, which uh, helps to do that. And uh, and there are a number of options for that. You know, is it a choice, for example, between Mrs. May's deal, which has been rejected by Parliament, or no deal? Uh, or do you ask the people to choose between Mrs. May's deal or remaining in the European Union? Uh, 
Or do you have three options, Mrs. May's deal remaining in the European Union or leaving? And then it gets very uh, complicated. Yeah, if it's th- it could three be options. very complicated. Mm. And so, uh, and so the thing is that uh, so there are also uh, a number, as I say, there are a number of hurdles that you've got to get through. And one of the problems that you've got, even if you did have uh, a legislative majority, a majority in Parliament to pass a bill calling for a referendum, is that it's likely to take a few months. And that would mean that you run up against this deadline of uh, March 29th, 2019, so that Britain wouldn't be ready to leave by then. And and so Britain would have to ask the European Union for an extension of the negotiating period for article under Article 50. And the European Union can agree to extend that if all member states unanimously agree to do so. And so uh, so that, again, in a way, is... is, um, is a negotiation uh, with the European Union. So the question is, does the European Union say, yeah, fine, we'll just wait until you've made up your minds uh, as to what you want? Or does the European Union say, look, we've been talking about this and negotiating for two years, so uh, we're going to only agree to an extension on certain conditions. So, for example, that Whatever uh, deal you decide to to agree on, it's not going to be uh, any worse than what we've already agreed, or that there are certain sorts of guarantees that uh, there's not going to be any backsliding. Or the European Union could simply say, um, actually, uh, we're, you know, there's nothing that a referendum can determine that, uh, you know, you haven't already uh, agreed to, uh, you know, in terms of negotiations, it's not going to get us any further, and we're tired of waiting for you. So there are all these imponderables uh, with regard to having a second referendum. Having said all of that, we are getting to a point in these negotiations and with the parliamentary arithmetic at Westminster where it looks like Theresa May could this week bring a deal back from Brussels. It could get through her cabinet and then be rejected in Parliament, partly with the help of votes both from Brexiteers on the Conservative backbenches and pro-Europeans on the Conservative backbenches like Joe Johnson, who you mentioned. And so uh, that you're then left with the prospect of no particular form of Brexit having a majority in Parliament. And yet a majority in Parliament being opposed to leaving the European Union Union without a deal. And so then you've got a couple of options to try to break the deadlock. One is to have another general election and another is to have a second referendum. So I think that, uh, you know, it remains a possibility, but it is quite a complicated route to get there. And I think for a time in the early in these, in, in, say in the early months after the referendum, the, the second referendum was a, I mean, after the Brexit, the 2016 vote, a second referendum was the option that dare not speak its name. But now it's notable how more and more politicians seem unafraid to, to talk about this option. How much support is there for it now, do you think? Well, it depends on the polling that you look at. And it also depends on how you ask the question. So if you ask people uh, the question, uh, you know, the public, do you want a second referendum on Brexit? They'll say no, generally. But if you say, if Theresa May comes back with a deal, would you like that deal to be put to the people in a, in a vote? Then they're inclined to say yes. And uh, and but but more importantly, in a way, for the uh, for the business of whether you get a referendum or not, is how much support in Parliament. And I think that Joe Johnson's resignation 
is an important moment where that's concerned. Because what he did was that he made a case for uh, rejecting Theresa May's deal and for calling for a second referendum on a basis that uh, could unite both Brexiteers and Remainers, insofar as he said, this deal is worse than remaining in the European Union. And this morning I was talking to Steve Baker, who is one of the leading Eurosceptics in the uh, in the Conservative Party. And he said exactly that. He said this deal that Theresa May is talking about is actually a worse position than being in the European Union and that he was prepared to take the risk by voting against this deal that you could see Parliament trying to call another referendum. But he just thought that that was preferable to the idea of simply swallowing this deal, which is the worst of all possible worlds as far as many on both sides of the debate are concerned. But as you've just explained a moment ago from the looking at it from the Brussels and 27 member states perspective, this is not as simple as as the UK having another referendum, um, changing the result of the 2016 vote and c- coming back to the Brussels and saying, sorry, it's been a bit of a misunderstanding when we when we said we wanted to leave, we really meant we'd love to stay. Yes, I think there's a, you know, there, there are a couple of issues here. One is that, you know, there's a, for example, there's a, a case before the European Court of Justice right now, which is asking if uh, the UK can unilaterally revoke its uh, notice under Article 50 that it was about to leave. So, uh, and, uh, you know, there, uh, this is going through the courts right now. But part of the argument against allowing the, the UK to unilaterally revoke it is that uh, there's a kind of a moral hazard uh, worry that actually other member states might decide we'll start this two-year process of negotiating to leave and we'll mess everything up. And then at the last minute, we'll say... Um, Actually, we've changed our minds and having messed you all around for two years, we're now actually going to stay and we're still going to be as awkward after we stay as we were before we decided to leave. And there there will be some anxiety uh, among the EU27 that having been uh, a difficult customer for quite a long time and then deciding to leave, that if Britain decides to change its mind, that it could, uh, you know, decide that it wants to come back and still be awkward. And so there will be some member states, I imagine, who will actually say that if Britain wants to remain in the European Union, it can't have some of the sweet deals that it already has. So, for example, a rebate on its budget contribution. It gets mm. some of the money it pays in, it gets back as a rebate. That was several negotiated lo- by Margaret Thatcher. Several opt-outs uh, in various areas. Yeah. Sorry, exactly, go ahead. all mm. of these opt-outs. They might just say that actually, you know, you're just going to be a member state like everybody else. I think, frankly, it's probably, if you got to the point where the UK decided to, to change its mind and stay in, it probably would be able to remain in on the same conditions uh, as it has now. Uh, I think if it were to leave and then apply to rejoin, the story might be different. But I think there is a misunderstanding sometimes here in uh, in Britain. Uh, you know, when they hear uh, European Union leaders saying, we're very sorry that you decided to leave, we wish this wasn't happening, that they're actually begging Britain to stay. Whereas actually quite a lot of them have sort of moved on from the referendum decision, which is a decision they regret, but nonetheless, they kind of now want this orderly exit to happen. And uh, and so, it, you know, people in Brussels and in the Commission have made it very clear, for example, that if Theresa May comes back from Brussels with a deal this week and puts it to Parliament, that the European Union is going to say that this is the choice between this deal and no deal, and that they're not going to uh, to to dangle the carrot of potentially extending Article 50 negotiations. Obviously, if the deal is rejected, that could change. But at the moment, what Brussels wants is for a deal to be done and for the UK to leave in an orderly fashion. So would you say a second vote remains very unlikely at this stage? 
I think it still remains unlikely, but I think it remains. I think it's less unlikely this week than it was last week because of the fact that the uh, you know first of all that I think that the prospect of Theresa May's deal getting through Parliament, if indeed she decides to put it to Parliament, uh, are diminishing. And uh, and secondly, that support for a second referendum is growing within Parliament and I think probably outside Parliament as well. OK, Dennis, um, I suspect we'll be returning to this topic, but we'll leave it there for, for now. Thank you. That was Dennis Staunton in London. It's to Madrid now, where the Spanish judiciary is coming under increasing scrutiny, with many questioning its independence and integrity. Guy Hechko has more on this and he joins me now from Madrid. Guy, these question marks over the judiciary in Spain arise as a result of a number of different cases and they all have different features. So maybe we'll we'll take them in isolation and then look at the overall picture. We might start with the case of Arnaldo Otegi, a Basque separatist politician who had a significant victory recently at the European Court of Human Rights. Yes, that's right. Um, Just last week, um, the the court ruled that um, a trial that he faced in which he was found guilty um, of trying to reform the outlawed uh, Batasuna party, which was um, linked to ETA, um, that that trial had been flawed because a, a judge overseeing the trial, a woman called Angela Murillo, um, had not shown sufficient impartiality. Now, the, the, the lack of impartiality she had shown was not actually specifically in that particular trial, but in a previous trial she'd been involved in with Arnaldo Otegi. Um, now, that sounds very complicated, but the, the, the specifics were that in the previous trial uh, involving Otegi, she had asked him um, at one point, do you condemn the violence of ETA? Otegi had answered, I don't want to answer that question. And she had replied, um, pues ya lo sabía, or that's what I thought, or I knew you would say that. And so the, uh, the Strasbourg court saw this as kind of evidence that um, she wasn't really, uh, given that, that, that she had made that comment, she wasn't really in a position to, to oversee a trial um, of Arnaldo Ortegi, such a sensitive trial. I should point out that the, this ruling by the, the Strasbourg court doesn't reverse the verdict um, or the sentence, which ended up with Ortegi going to prison. Um, but it was a, a fairly substantial rap on the knuckles uh, for Spain and for that court. And I suppose taken in isolation, I mean, any state probably can lose a case at the European Court of Human Rights. So maybe on its own, it doesn't amount to a serious undermining of the judiciary. But there was another case recently where the Supreme Court was forced to reverse one of its own decisions, which seems really unusual. Tell us about that one. Yes, in a way, this is more controversial, because although the Otegi case has a sort of international dimension to it, it really focused on just the actions of one judge. Now, in this case with the Supreme Court, um, the, the Supreme Court about three weeks ago, uh, made a ruling uh, whereby it decided to change um, the the party which should pay a mortgage tax, the tax that should be paid um, when a, a mortgage was taken out by a homeowner. Now, previously, um, the homeowner or the home buyer would have paid that tax. It's, it's a small percentage um, of the overall mortgage. And the Supreme Court, um, a few weeks ago, changed that, made a ruling saying that now banks should uh, be liable to pay that. Now, that uh, meant that there was a possibility that banks could face pretty hefty um, lawsuits from people, from from home buyers who had been paying this previously and wanted to get their money back because they'd been paying this tax and they could now present lawsuits to banks. So the financial sector 
really panicked at this decision. Um, the shares of, of many of the, the big banks in Spain started to plummet. And within 24 hours, the Supreme Court, in response to all this panic, it seemed, within the financial sector, announced that it was going to reconsider that decision. Now, many people were very upset at that because they felt that this was you know, a, a very clear instance of the Supreme Court responding to you know, the big economic powers of the country rather than you know, responding to, to you know, the will of the Spaniards, if you like, or, um, or other groups. And so there was, a, there was a lot of outrage there. And when the, the Supreme Court uh, reconsidered this, and then last week, again, uh, they presented their, their reconsidered ruling, which was that homeowners, home buyers should be liable to pay this tax. Um, so again, there was, there was outrage at this. And uh, the Spanish government actually stepped in and said it was going to change the rules by decree. And so it seems to have sort of staved off um, the, the sort of indignation, the outrage at the, at the Supreme Court's decision by changing the rules so that banks do actually end up having to pay it. But nonetheless, there, there was a feeling that a lot of damage was done to the credibility of the Supreme Court by taking this unprecedented step of reconsidering its own decision. And what justification guide did the court offer for changing its mind? I mean, did it refer to the public controversy or did it try to find some sort of legal, you know, loophole or mechanism to get its way out of the mess? Well, it, it, it did. I mean, it referred specifically to what it called the social and e- economic repercussions of its original decision. Um, so, you know, it, it wasn't sort of attempting to hide the reasons behind uh, why it did this, why it was reconsidering. It said very specifically, we're doing this because essentially because the banks are panicking and this could have big repercussions for the banks and the financial sector. So I, I think the fact it was so sort of um, open and, and you know blatantly referring to to the interests of the banks. That was one of the reasons why people were so upset at this decision. And it's an odd one, isn't it? Because we expect the Supreme Court to say it's making a decision based solely on law. And if there are social consequences, well, then it's usually Parliament that steps in and maybe changes the law. But it's, <laughs> I've never heard of a Supreme Court doing something like that. Well, yes, that's right. And, and this sort of arguably goes to you know to the back to the fact that the the Supreme Court. Um, that there is a feeling that it's highly politicised, that not all the courts in Spain are highly politicised, but certainly the sort of higher courts, whether it's the Supreme Court, the Supreme Courts in the country's different uh, regions, and also the Constitutional Court. Now, um, those are, are appointed by something called the General Council of the Judiciary, which is sort of the highest judicial body in Spain. And the members of that body are directly appointed by the two main parties. That, and, and in this case, it's this this body has just been sort of, um, its, its members have been reappointed just this week. Um, and it's been kind of carved up between the, the, the governing Socialist Party and the opposition uh, Popular Party, Conservatives. So there's a feeling that the, the political parties have perhaps too much uh, involvement in the naming of judges, and that can um, prevent the kind of meritocracy that you might need in a, in a judiciary. And Guy, there have been a number of cases recently as well around freedom of speech issues that have caused controversy, people finding themselves in trouble over comments made in, on social media and so on. Can you tell us about some of those? Yes, I mean, this has been a, a sort of relatively recent phenomenon whereby uh, a court called the Audiencia Nacional, which is often referred to as the, as the high court, um, but it's a court which tends to specialise in sort of organised crime and terrorism offences. And it's been particularly active over the last sort of couple of years or so in pursuing, um, on the one hand, 
social media users, users, people on Twitter um, and other social media, people who are, who are seen as uh, posting hateful or offensive material there. And on the other hand, artists, performers, uh, singers and rappers um, for allegedly doing the same thing, for, for um, having offensive material in their songs or when they rap or material that they've posted on the Internet. And this court is, has been uh, investigating these cases because it believes that they are cases that are related to terrorism. Now, there's one case um, of a rapper who's known as Valtonic, Josep Valtonic, and he's from Mallorca. And earlier this year, he was given a three and a half year jail sentence for charges that included uh, insulting the king and uh, terrorist threats. And that was because he talked about, uh, for example, blowing up a local politician in Mallorca with a nuclear bomb. Um, he'd, 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 and this is all in, in songs of his, but he talked about the um, hanging King Felipe in a public square um, and, and so on. And so he was he was sentenced to three and a half years in prison before he actually went to jail. Um, just a few days before he was he was expected to go into jail. He fled. He took off to to Belgium um, and he's now waiting to see if uh, he will be extradited back to Spain. Um, to, so he it's in, in which case he would go to prison in Spain. But at the mo moment, we're waiting to see the, the result of that. But there have been several cases of this. There is a theory that because um, the terrorist group ETA no longer exists, um, it's, it, it disbanded several months ago. It hasn't killed for several years um, that the, the the high court sort of it, it doesn't have a target to go after. This is what some people believe, that um, there aren't enough sort of terrorists um, targets for it. So it's going after rather softer targets. Um, other people say that's not the case. That's simply the case of certain judges being rather overzealous. Um, and also that the law is a bit vague in this area, particularly with regard to social media. And so that no one's entirely clear about the rules. Um, so that is another explanation that we're hearing. Now, Graeme, most of our listeners will already be very familiar with the ongoing standoff between Madrid and the, and the Catalan independence movement. And nine Catalan independence leaders have been in jail now for a year or so, awaiting trial for alleged offences arising from last year's independence referendum. Um, where did those cases stand? Well, we, we just heard recently the, 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 the charges that those um, defendants will, will face when their trial uh, begins. We don't have a date for this this highly anticipated trial yet. We expect it to start um, sometime uh, early next year, but we still don't have a date. But we, we recently heard that the, the, the charges against uh, all 18 defendants, as well as the, the nine who are in prison and then the other nine who uh, are facing charges, they were formalised and, and they include uh, charges of rebellion. Um, those are sort of the most serious charges that some of them face. That's a particularly contentious um, charge because it implies the use of violence in the in that failed independence um, attempt that we saw last year. So, for example, the former president of Catalonia, sorry, former vice president of Catalonia, Oriol Junqueras, who is in prison, he could face a 25 year jail sentence if found guilty of rebellion. Um, now, the the independence movement um, and pro independence parties in Catalonia, they have have been very keen to sort of cast the the Spanish. Uh, judiciary overall and the, the Supreme Court in particular, because that's the court that's handling most of these cases, um, as unfit for purpose, as um, a sort of dysfunctional judiciary, which is 
um, not independent, um, doesn't respect the separation of powers and so on. And this has been a, a sort of constant campaign that the, um, that the independence movement has been waging. Now, I should point out that you know, many, um, many politicians and, and magistrates in Madrid and elsewhere have been giving the, the opposite argument, saying that you know, actually the, the judiciary, maybe it does need some kind of reform, it maybe needs more funds, but it's not as politicized as the, the Catalan independence movement makes out. Um, it is fit for purpose and that the guarantees are there uh, for a fair trial whenever this trial begins. The problem is that um, the Spanish judiciary is facing all this scrutiny at the moment and all this criticism in the build up to that trial. And, and it's a tremendously highly anticipated trial because we haven't seen anything like it before in Spain. You know, all these politicians possibly facing uh, hefty jail sentences. The, the result of it, that the, the sentence is likely to be pretty provocative. Um, and so it's not just the, the Catalan independence movement that's watching it very, very closely, but everyone in Spain is awaiting it um, with bated breath. And apart guy from the charges themselves and the potential jail sentences, I mean, I think a feature of this case, if I'm, if I'm not wrong, I think all of these nine defendants voluntarily turned up in court. Now, I know every judicial system is different, but we would expect certainly in Ireland, if somebody presents themselves in court, makes themselves available, that they would expect to get bail in those circumstances and, and await their trial. Um, it's, it's the detention for a year without, you know, the trial having taken place. Is there a concern in Spain about that beyond the Catalan independence movement? Yes. I mean, I think that in a way is the most contentious a detail of all this, um, as you point out. Um, I think you know many people. Uh, you know, if you talk to many people in in Madrid or Valencia or elsewhere in Spain, or, or people who you know who oppose Catalan independence, um, they might think that um, this trial should go ahead, um, and and that's fine. But they will not understand why um, so many of these politicians have been kept in custody for so long. Now. The, the argument of the judiciary is, is kind of twofold. It's that on the one hand, um, they want to avoid you know, flight risk. They say that there's a, there's a risk that they'll take off for Belgium, as, as Carlos Puigdemont, the, the former Catalan president, did last year, and then they won't be able to face trial. Um, and then the, the, other, the other risk is uh, the possibility that they might reoffend. Now, I mean, there are holes in those in those claims because you know there are other ways of keeping people in the country. You can make, you can make them um, turn up at a police station every day or every week, or you can take their passport away or their ID. Um, and it, it looks fairly unlikely that these politicians would be able to reoffend in the, in the short term um, at the moment. So those arguments by the judiciary, by the Supreme Court, are being questioned, and I think those are sort of. That, that policy of keeping them in, in prison all the way through until the trial, especially when the trial doesn't have a date, is often being questioned, not just in Catalonia, but across Spain. And so, Guy, we've had all of these individual controversies then. Um, what kind of debate are they generating in Spain in general then about the judiciary? I mean, are people, for example, looking at the, the, the method by which judges are appointed, which you, you referred to earlier? Yes, I mean, I, th I think people find it sort of slightly disconcerting that, you know, we're supposedly in this new era whereby we don't have a bi-party system anymore. Um, you know, for 30 years or so, you just had the Socialist Party and the, and the Popular Party were the main two parties, and they kind of carved up the judiciary between them and those, those posts that could be um, controlled by, by uh, political parties or appointed by political parties. But now we have two other quite major parties, Podemos and Ciudadanos. They have had no input into the new appointments to the General Council of the Judiciary. And that's just because they don't have quite enough seats 
in Congress or the Senate to do so. So there's a feeling that this is a sort of slightly um, antiquated system, apart from the fact that it is politicized anyway. I mean, many countries do have a certain amount of politicization, but this kind of quota system that Spain has, there's a feeling that that perhaps is out of date, it's out of step with the times in Spain and, and political changes in Spain. Um, so there's a feeling that, you know, right now Spain is, is celebrating the 40th anniversary of its constitution, which sort of paved the way for the transition to democracy. You know, a lot of people, particularly on the left, certainly in Catalonia and, and, and the Basque country and, and nationalists in those places, but particularly on the, on the political left, um, a lot of people are um, saying that now would be a good time to overhaul the judiciary, perhaps as part of a constitutional reform. Um, but there is uh, increasing pressure there. Whether it will happen is quite another matter, I think. And Guy, you, you anticipated my last question there, and I was, I was going to say that all of this is unfolding against the background of the 40th anniversary um, commemoration or whatever of the founding of the Constitution. Um, is constitutional reform now now on the agenda? Because people they tend, to, tend to view the Constitution in Spain as something immovable, don't they? And uh, everything goes back to it. But is it now under scrutiny in a new way? Yes, I mean, I, I, I think it is. I think it has been um, since the economic crisis of a few years back, you know, that began around 2008 and ran through to 2012, 2013, when um, we didn't just see um, the political parties undermined or the banks credibility undermined, but we saw a lot of the of Spain's institutions undermined, whether it was the uh, the monarchy because of you know, certain scandals um, or, you know, parliament as a whole, um, and, and also the judiciary because there were a lot of, a lot of corruption cases came out of, of that economic crisis. So that sort of sparked a kind of beginning of a kind of um, navel-gazing, if you like, and people started to think, well, maybe this constitution that we've held up as a sacred cow for, you know, three and a half decades or so, Maybe we need to start looking at it again. It served its purpose very well back in 1978, you know, three years after Franco died. Um, but I think as time goes by, and particularly as a sort of as younger generations have come of age, younger generations who didn't live through that transition and don't see it with quite such sort of reverent, uh, quite such reverence and, 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 and diffidence, I think as they come through uh, and come of age, they're starting to question the constitution and think, well, maybe some of these things could be um, could be reformed. We've only had two proper uh, reforms of the constitution over the last 40 years. Uh, one was for the the Maastricht, uh, the Maastricht um, Treaty in 1992 to accommodate that. And um, another was during the, the Eurozone crisis um, to reform the, um, the, the budgetary law. Um, so it's very difficult to carry out constitutional reform in Spain, partly because it's held in this high regard uh, by many of the people who are in power. That's all for this week. For more on these and other stories, go to irishtimes.com. Thanks for listening. Goodbye for now.